It's early on a Sunday morning, so you know what that means. Grinders, once again, this is our time. This is the Sunday Morning Grind Podcast, episode number 18. Josh Taylor joined, as always, by my trusted associate, producer, co-host, Greg Finley. Greg, just came off vacation, just kind of getting re-immersed into everything going on here, but it's good to be back and doing this one more time. Absolutely, and we got a lot to talk about, including the college football playoff finally doing something right. And the crazy part about it is they could have done this years ago. They would just, you know, stop denying that it's a good idea and then making it a good idea when they come up with it. But we'll get into that. <laughs> Plus, we got to talk about NBA playoffs. We got to talk about some other stuff in our favorite news headline game. Is this a thing for episode 18? By the way, there was some discussion we had off air about whether or not uh, we wanted to name this episode with one name or another. We settled on the Mike Tom, um, excuse me, Mike Tomzak episode. I'm saying Mike Tomlin. The Mike Tomzak episode, number 18. I thought long and hard about the Jason Kendall episode, but the truth of the matter is I don't have time to tell my Jason Kendall story. <laughs> so we'll save that for another episode, but we will circle back to it at some point. But we'll call it the Mike Tomzak episode. I think that's a little bit more fitting. Plus, it's a little bit more of an obscure name. Jason Kendall may be a little bit too easy. So we'll go with the Mike Tomzak episode. I'm I'm cool with that. I I remember as a kid having Steeler VHS tapes from like '95 through '97, and you know Cordell was the quarterback, but Tom Zack would fill in, and so I I know who he is at least, even though I was one years old. See, you were you you have tapes of Steeler backup Mike Tom Zack. I actually remember watching Bears backup Mike Tom Zack like early '90s before he became a Steeler. Mm. I remember Chicago Bears backup quarterback Mike Thompson. I didn't even know he played for the Bears. He played for the Bears. That's how old I am, Greg. And then Cordell went to Chicago after he played for Pittsburgh. He did indeed. He went to Chicago. You were absolutely right. Yeah, I, I remember previous Steelers stop Mike Tomczak. That's how old I am. But no, nonetheless, the Mike Tomczak episode. I'm pretty sure he wore 18 in Chicago, too, if I'm not mistaken. Okay. I'll have to go back and look that up to be sure. But let's jump into this. Let's talk about the college football playoff expansion. We have talked about this for – you and I have discussed this for, what, years pretty much since we've known each other? I think probably the first college football playoff was when we first started talking about this. It might have been – you might be right. And I think we – since then, we've just been discussing, like, wait a minute. They're finally doing this. But then you look at the number – and this is the thing that stuck out to me. You look at the number of invites that have been handed out – to teams that aren't the same four or five programs. And you're like, okay, maybe we're missing the point here of having a playoff. If we're going to keep putting the same teams in every year, then maybe we either need, maybe we either need to look at another alternative for this or expand the playoff. Mm -hmm. And I think someone who didn't realize it before said, Hey, wait a minute. If we expand the playoff, that means there's more teams playing and there's more games and there's more money, which is something that us pro-expanding playoff people have been telling you for years now. As a matter of fact, we were telling you this when we were trying to promote having the playoff instead of the BCS. Yes. It's like they can't figure out how the flow chart works and money's at the bottom. But for some reason, they can't get from the top to the bottom where the bottom's always more money. And they keep getting lost at the same point because they're going on the wrong side. When all they want is more money. When all they want is more money. <laughs> You'll, they'll give you every argument. Well, you know, well, well, that means this team will get in and this team might not be deserving. You're going to make more money. Oh, yeah, okay, we'll do it. 
Is that all it took? That's all it took. <laughs> and, and, and at the same time, there was a stat. I was watching ESPN, and they were talking about this expansion. And they said 20 out of the 28 college football playoff teams, the same four teams, Alabama, Clemson, Ohio State, Oklahoma, made it to the semifinals 20 out of the 28 times. What does that tell you? There's no parity. No parity at all. <laughs> Nothing has changed. And the thing is... The teams that are deserving, like LSU in 2019, it made perfect sense. They were undefeated. They were beating everybody. Mm -hmm. Some of them were teams that were good teams, and they were just blowing their doors off. Mm -hmm. Uh, LSU was just undeniable. Alabama last year was just undeniable. Usually there's one or two teams. It's just like we're idiots if we don't let this team in because they have given you every reason to do it and no reasons not to. But then every once in a while, there's a Ohio State recently who, you know, had to have its own conference circumvent their rules on how many games they were to play in order to make sure they had enough games so they can actually qualify to win the conference championship and get into the playoff. And it's like, oh, that seems like a really screwed up way to cheat for a team to get in. <laughs> but, I mean, it, this is what we're talking about here. They find new ways to manipulate the system to get teams in, and it's not like they're trying to, you know, backdoor a, a, a Northwestern or a Michigan State. No, they're doing this to get Ohio State in, and Ohio State's been in like 15 times already. And they're trying to not, backdoor a Power 5 school that's been in all the time. Well, not 15 times, but enough freaking times for it to matter. You know, yes. it makes a difference. But it, I heard some people saying like, oh, well, you know, well, it, it kind of brings up the scenario of a 7-5 and five pit team if they won the ACC. Slow down a second. A seven and five pit team is not winning the ACC championship, especially if Clemson's on the other side, which they always are. So let's maybe let's use a better example. That's all I'm saying. I'm not trying to dump on a, pit. a just, good you know. pit team that played Clemson in the ACC championship wasn't going to win the ACC. Why would a seven and five team do it? The eight now, maybe if you, I can make a case for the eight and four team in in 2016. That's what I'm referring. The to. Matt Canada offense team because that's what I call them because I have to remind people. Yeah, Matt Canada had that team averaging 40 points per game. Steeler fans, listen to what I'm telling you. But, you know, maybe that team you make the case for, assuming that there would have been an ACC championship game, and let's say somehow they play Clemson again and beat Clemson, which is probably which will probably be at um, Bank of America Stadium in Charlotte. Maybe they beat Clemson there in a, in a conference championship game. That team you put in the playoff, okay, fine, because they beat Clemson twice to get there. Mm -hmm. I see that part. Mm -hmm. But when we're talking about and I hear people like, oh, what about a champion that, you know, that, that Windsor Conference Championship game that has four or five losses? I'm like, that only happens in the ACC. And that team's not beating Clemson. That doesn't happen in the Pac-12. doesn't happen in the Big 12. Actually, then again, the Big 12, I can see that being possible. I mean, let me retract. <laughs> Especially if it's like a Texas. I can see like an 8-4 Texas team winning the Big 12. And everybody's like, how the hell did they get here? Mm -hmm. <laughs> but, you know, on the grand scheme of things. I hear people trying to say, oh, well, if that, means, if that happens, that means this team will get in. And part of me is like, you know what? I don't hate that. I kind of don't hate it. If it's a team that has two or three losses, but their wins are really, really good wins, and one or two of those teams might be in the playoff too, put them in. What are we discussing here? Yeah, it should be it's, – it's going to be the top four teams, and I believe that you could probably – I don't think you can have two from the same conference as your top four that get the bye. No, it then, has to be it has to be Power Five conference champion. Okay, then five through twelve is 
conference champions, and then the best-seeded team. Right. So, I look And at, there needs to be a group of five conference champion in there, too. I look at a situation like Cincinnati, when they had that really good season recently, yes. and they didn't get in. I look at UCF when they went undefeated and they didn't get in. Coastal I look at Carolina. Oklahoma State when they had a great season and they didn't get in. This is what they're finally addressing. And I can't stress this enough. Hallelujah for the fine print that says if Notre Dame goes undefeated, they do not get a bye because they're independent. <laughs> That's what you get. That is what you get. You were independent, and you got your doors blown off by Alabama last mm-hmm. year. You don't deserve a bye. You just don't because you don't play anybody. Yeah. It would be different if we're talking the Notre Dame of, like, the 90s when they played Michigan, Michigan State, Stanford, Pitt every year. Mm-hmm. This ain't that Notre Dame. No. They're not playing that kind of schedule. So I I think that's fair. And, you know, Notre Dame needs to be that program that needs to earn their way in. Now, if they play a ridiculously good schedule or they play some really good Power 5 teams and blow their doors off, in the, maybe in the fashion that LSU did in 2019, then maybe I'm like, okay, let Notre Dame in and let them in the top four. But you need to really make the case. Don't just come in and just beat anybody and, and beat Clemson in, in triple overtime without Trevor Lawrence and expect to be treated differently. No. Mm-hmm. you got to come in doing it the way everybody else is doing it, or you're not going to be treated the way everybody else is treated. It also puts an emphasis on the, ch- the conference championship game. Do you remember when Penn State played Wisconsin, but Ohio State got into the playoffs? Yes, and I thought that was a shame then because Penn State actually beat Ohio State that season. Right. So that puts an emphasis now on conference championships. If you win your conference championship, you get a bid. That's was, how it should be. Which was crazy because when it was first instituted that they were going to have a playoff, the first discussion was conference champions were going to get at least extra consideration. Mm-hmm. Or they were going to be you know, looked at differently than everybody else. If you were a conference champion, that might be the thing that pushes you over the edge. And that's the thing they kept ignoring to put certain teams back in. And I'm like, this feels like the AP era all over again. That's what it felt like, because it's like voters are putting certain teams in, and this committee seems like they're putting certain teams in, and nothing's changed. Right. So, thankfully, it seems like, and this hasn't passed yet, but I think if this leaked out to the public and didn't pass, they're going to get slammed for not passing this. So I think it has to. So a 12-team playoff... Hallelujah, we're finally here. And it'll take two years for it to actually be implemented, which I think is dumb. I think it should happen immediately. If they wanted to do it bad enough, they could do it next season if they felt like it. I hate when they keep, oh, well, you know, we got we to take this much time. Yeah, they said they said that their current deal, they had to wait two more years. Like, you can't get out of a contract. You're the NCAA. They, they go out of their way to do all kinds of different stuff when they feel like it. But now all of a sudden, well, we just aren't able to feel like it. Whatever. <laughs> Fine. We're not able to feel it. Is, here, and here's the thing I keep coming back to. Because I hear people go, oh, well, it'll interfere with exams. And I'm like, dude, FCS, Division Two, Division Three, they've been doing it for capital letters in bold, in italics, and underlined. Years. Mm-hmm. They have been doing this format of a straight single elimination tournament to determine their subdivisions champion. For years. What is your problem? Now, do you think that with this new format, we're still going to get the same four teams in the Final Four? If we do, at least we know they've earned the right. Mm -hmm. 
it's different when you have Ohio State and the Big Ten circumventing the rules to get Ohio State in, as opposed to Ohio State coming in and just blasting people, blowing folks out of the water, winning each game by 20 points plus to get in or get to the championship game. That I don't mind, or even just to get to the, the Final Four. I don't mind that part. I don't mind that at all. But let's make sure, because we talked about when we originally talked about setting up this playoff, the original plan was, okay, let's settle this on the field. But it's not being settled on the field. Now, the teams who get in, assuming you don't have to circumvent the rules to get them in, now they're actually proving that they belong. If you put 12 teams out there and the ones that survive are Alabama, Ohio State, Oklahoma, and Clemson, then at least it was proven on the field that that was the best four teams. Right. It's like I don't mind that. It's like March Madness. The the number the 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 four one seeds don't always run the table. And to your point, how long of a period were the same teams and the same coaches winning national championships? Because there was a good twenty year stretch where the guys winning national championships, despite the expanded field, were still Shashevsky, Roy Williams, um, uh, Jay Wright. Jim Calhoun, Jim Beheim had one Tom stuck Izzo. in there. Tom Izzo had one like kind of wedged in there. Um, Bill Self wins one. Yeah, it's the same five, six it's, schools. It's, it's like the same coaches and the same teams. Patino wins a handful. Um, I mean, Kevin Ollie wins one right after Jim Calhoun retires because he pretty much was shoehorned into a championship team. Correct. Like It, it was the same criteria. It's the same guys over and over again. You know, we're looking at it going, well, we gonna do? We expanded the field. Like, well, we knew what the we knew what the best programs were. Right. We know who the four blue bloods in college basketball. Are. We know the four blue bloods in college basketball: are Duke, North Carolina, Kentucky, and Kansas. Everyone knows this. Mm-hmm. Yet we're still surprised. Like, oh, here they go. They're back in it again. Well, yeah, they're back in it again because they've been there for a while now. It's not a surprise. It's the same thing with football. Alabama's always going to be there. Who right. who doesn't want to play for Nick Saban? Right. But the fact that, as I talk about these four blue bloods in college basketball, but the fact that they kept earning their way back over and over again, that John Calipari puts teams together to get back there over and over again, that Mike Krzyzewski used to put teams together, and Roy Williams used to put teams together to get back there over and over again, and so did Rick Pitino, rule violations notwithstanding, put teams together to get back there over and over again, they still proved it when the time came. Now you have an opportunity in the college football playoff to do the same thing. Okay, putting a bow on this, my final question. When it comes to non-conference schedule, now that with the regular season and winning your conference championship is going to be so crucial, are we going to see two heavyweight teams play each other out of conference, or are they all going to be cupcakes now? They, they need to have better non-conference schedules. Let me put it to you this way. If Duquesne's non-conference schedule being an FCS school is better than yours, you don't need to be in the playoff. Duquesne's going on the road to play TCU this year in Fort Worth. Are they really? Yes. There are some FBS teams who have worse non-conference schedules than FCS Duquesne. One of them might actually be in this city, but we're not going to discuss that right now. Duquesne's going to TCU. Duquesne is going to TCU. I believe it's Labor Day weekend. Is that on TV? I hope it is. Probably not. But still, it'll be on like ESPN Plus or something. Maybe that'll be cool. Yeah, they're they're gonna get destroyed. But still, <laughs> like if there's FCS schools with better non-conference schedules than you, you don't need to be in the playoff if you go undefeated. That's what I'm saying. I I hate that these schools come out and go. Well, now that this is happening, we have to watch out for ourselves. It's like no, that's not how that works. The NFL doesn't go. Well, 
we can't play against the Chiefs because we might not win our division if we play them. That's not how that works. High school football, they don't go, well, we can't play North Allegheny. We're not going to win our conference if we play them. Let me get this straight. Let me get this straight. Let me get this straight. We got whole teams full of big, strong, fast alpha males. But they can't play against other certain teams with a lot of big, strong alpha males because they're worried about losing. Yep. In the team that's in the game that's supposed to be the ultimate tough guy game, ultimate team sport with a bunch of alpha males coached by a bunch of alpha males. But they don't want to face other teams with certain alpha males because, oh, you know, we got to protect ourselves from losing. Well, we already what? play. We already play in a tough conference. We play in the Big Ten. We can't play tough teams outside the Big Ten. Nah, shut up. You ever, you ever notice how every Power Five conference we play in a tough conference? No kidding. You're a Power Five team. Hello. <laughs> There's still cupcake teams in that conference, though. I, I love Even how the SEC has some easy wins. I love how there was times a few years back like, oh, they're playing in the ACC. I'm like, uh, yeah, if you're playing in the Atlantic, I'll give you that. Because if you're playing against Louisville when they were still good and had Bobby Petrino, or Florida State when they were still good and had Jimbo Fisher, or Clemson being Clemson, that I'd listen to. Yes. But two of those teams are no longer as good as they used to be. And the Coastal is still the Coastal. So let's not kid ourselves. It's Clemson and everybody else. It's Clemson and everybody else. Just like the Big Ten for all intents and purposes, on one side of the division, it's Wisconsin and everybody else. And on the other side, it's Ohio State, sometimes Penn State, Never Michigan when it should be Michigan, and then everybody else. Mm-hmm. What am I missing here? Pac-12, you got USC, who should be head and shoulders above everybody. Oregon, who is head and shoulders above everybody probably once every four years. And then a couple other teams kind of playing substitute teacher. Boy, the Pac-12 is pretty garbage. <laughs> I mean, you know, it, it took Herm Edwards walking into the Pac-12 and really making a lot of ruckus for people to start paying attention to the Pac-12. <laughs> and that's totally, you know, ignoring the fact that Stanford might have one of my favorite coaches in college football in David Shaw. David Shaw might be the most consistent coach in the Pac-12 because Stanford will win you eight, nine, ten games a season. They may not win the game they're supposed to to vault them into the actual, you know, conversation of should they be in the playoff or can they win the Pac-12, but they'll win you, you know, a good number of games every year and land you in a bowl game. And that's considering the fact that they're Stanford. They're not USC. They're not Oregon. They're not Arizona. You know, they put a lot of smart kids on their team, and being smart kind of gets you in the door. Then you got to be a football player after that. So that kind of makes it a little bit more complicated. That puts them in the Notre Dame, Vanderbilt, Northwestern kind of category of, yeah, this is the smart kids school, so probably nine times out of ten they're going to have a harder time beating every other team that has loaded athletes. But in the same token, you look at the Big 12, and it's like, all right, Oklahoma speaks for itself. Most days it's Oklahoma and then everybody else. Are you really that worried about Texas? No. I'm not. Are you that worried about Texas Tech? No. I'm not. Are you that worried about... um, Baylor. Baylor. I'm not. I'm not. Are you that worried about West Virginia? And I love covering West Virginia, but I'm not. No. Oklahoma gets the better players. They're going to have the number one quarterback in the league this year, probably the number one pick in the draft. If, If Spencer Rattler really is the real deal, which he probably is. He probably should be. And Let's not kid ourselves. Quarterbacks go to Oklahoma, and they go nuts. They just ball out. Mm-hmm. Kyler Murray went to Oklahoma, balled out. Baker Mayfield went to Oklahoma, balled out. Jalen Hurts went to Oklahoma. From Alabama, balled out. Sam Bradford. Sam Bradford went to Oklahoma, balled out. What do all those quarterbacks have in common? What offense did they run in Oklahoma nine times out of ten when those guys were there? The air raid. The air raid, which is built to put up video game numbers. 
So are we that surprised? No. No. <laughs> it it really for me it comes down to I thought you made a great case when you're talking about the Cincinnati's of the world and like how I make the case with the coastal Carolinas of the world. This now gives and this is probably for me, this is the most important part. It gives the group of five teams who have actually played a decent schedule, who have played some non-conference games that they've won against decent quality teams, it gives them a chance to really prove if they belong or not. UCF should have had a chance to prove if it belonged or not a few years back. Mm-hmm. Yes, they claimed the national title. I won't lie. It made me laugh to hell every time. <laughs> every time it cracked me up, I'm like, dude, those are champions. I love it. Because I'm like, dude, you know what? I, I, I respect the boldness. In dubbing yourselves national champions, you were undefeated. You're in. You're not in the Power Five conference, but you beat some Power Five teams. You actually had a pretty good season. You went undefeated. You lit people up in your bowl game. Hell, claim a national championship. Treat it like it's 1975. Who cares? I mean, there was days back then, like the 50s and 60s, where they handed out national championships like water, based on you know which which rating system or which bureau was voting on it. What mm-hmm. difference does it make? Right. So I can't blame them for that. But they should have had that opportunity. Now those teams more than likely will. So as we, you know, move forward from that, and we'll have more to talk about as this goes, because there's going to be some stuff that's kind of wedged in here that we're going to hate. I know this. Like, this is going to happen. It's June the 13th. We've got a lot to talk about from now till this college football season. And if if it's going to take two years, as they claim that's the best that they can do, they're terrible negotiators. But if it's going to take two two years, as they claim, a lot can happen in two years. So I'm sure there's more we'll talk about. And there. you know when we do our college football playoff show, we will rip that they're not doing this then. Oh, yeah, absolutely, because <laughs> that's what we do. That's what we do. Speaking of playoffs, let's switch to a playoff system that's already there, and most years it's actually pretty effective. NBA playoffs going on right now, and you and I have talked about the Nets, and going into this playoff round or going into this, this playoffs you know, in general proper, we talked about could the Nets figure everything out if they had everybody healthy, could they figure everything out and at least find that rhythm and click and just start to just blow people away? We thought we were going to see that against Boston. It took a little time for it to emerge and maybe a little bit of ribbing by Kyrie Irving to piss Boston fans off, but we finally saw what, what Brooklyn could be when everything was clicking. And then James Harden gets hurt. And we're like, well, can Brooklyn still be what they should be with James Harden hurt? And they kind of haven't missed a beat. Well, with Game 4 coming up at 3 o'clock today, it'll be interesting to see what happens because they lost Game 3. And the only reason they lost Game 3, in my honest opinion, is because they scored 11 points in the first quarter. If you're that cold and you're playing from behind, it was 30-11 to in the first quarter. I mean, most teams don't come back by that. And I was listening to ESPN Radio driving to work, and Mark Kestester, who I really like. Really him, good play-by-play guy. Him and John Barry, really good duo. Yes. He, they both said, you know, if there's one team that can come back in the blink of an eye, it's Brooklyn. Absolutely. And I texted you and was like, dude, they're down 30-11. to 11. And then it, literally in five minutes, they're winning. Yeah. And it's like, okay, they're that good. So even though Harden's hurt – even though they lost game three and it was and Durant almost tied it and sent it to overtime in double coverage, they got the they got the playmakers. If, yes. if they can find a way to take Giannis out of a game, I mean Giannis went nuts in game three. Game one and two, he was pretty quiet. 
He's chucking threes for what reason? I don't know. But I think Brooklyn realizes if we stand in front of him and give him space, he'll keep chucking because he's like four for 32 in the playoffs from three. And he's not beating as many people off the dribble as he used to. Right. Which I liked Giannis from a year or two years ago where he would try to use space to create off the dribble, but he created for other people Mm -hmm. because they had the ability to use space and they had enough shooters to exploit that space. But he's not doing that as much now. I don't know if it's because people are telling him, you got to take more on your shoulders and do this. I'm like, the best thing about Giannis was he would make the right decisions in the moment. If he could drive the lane and he found an open shooter, he found the open shooter and that guy could knock the shot down. But now it's like he's trying to take it upon himself to drive and make something happen, and it's not happening. That clip with him and Blake Griffin has been all over Twitter for the past you know couple days, and it's like him trying to take Blake Griffin off the dribble, and he ends up like trying to throw some ridiculous pass from damn near underneath the bl- the backboard after he's driving. It's like and falls out of bounds. And falls out of bounds. It's like what are you doing? It, I need Giannis to go back and be MVP Giannis, where he just did whatever it took. He didn't have to do it all by himself. Now, granted, it was necessary for him to do it in Game Three. But do it when it's necessary. Don't just do it because you feel like you have to. Mm-hmm. When you have a supporting cast that's literally built around you to do whatever you help set them up for. If that was the case, I'd feel more strongly about the Nets being able to contend. But since they can't really do that consistently, I don't. And to your point, even if Giannis is playing out of his mind, it doesn't take much for that Brooklyn team to get hot, especially when you still have Kevin Durant, you still have Kyrie Irving, and oh yeah, Blake Griffin gets space underneath. He's going to give you a hard time inside the paint. So what do you do with that And Joe Harris can knock down a three all the time. (laughs) And that too. So it's just like Brooklyn still has way too many weapons that aren't going to take nights off. Like Milwaukee sometimes is prone to do. Their defense sometimes takes nights off. Their their scoring ability sometimes takes nights off. uh, Brooklyn's, their ability... Their individual ability is not take nights off. Now, are they are they lax on defense from time to time? Absolutely. That doesn't change. But what they're able to do on any given night has shown through and through, even without James Harden. What's crazy to me is in game three, 86 to 83 was the final score. The Bucs had 30 points in the first quarter. They were held to 56 in the final three. That's insane to me. And they they shot very cold in the second quarter and let Brooklyn back in the game and give them credit. Drew Holiday made a great layup and hit it and yes. gave them the lead. They got a stop. Giannis hit the free throws, and then Durant missed the game winner. That's how you beat the Nets, though. You hold them to 83 points, but you only score 86. That's how you win. You have to win possession battles. How good has Drew Holiday been? He's been very good. I, I, love, I love that pickup for them because it made so much sense that a guy who can do a lot of different things – he doesn't have to be the main scorer in your team, but he could do a lot of different things just to help your team either get into games or start to pull away in games. He just makes plays. I love that about him. Yep, he's explosive, does a very good job. Uh, him versus Kyrie has been fun. Yes. Kyrie has just kind of went insane this series. Even whenever he's cold, like, oh, Kyrie doesn't have it tonight, he'll still go off the dribble and knock down big shots because he doesn't care. He's reminding me of that brief period after his injury at Duke and he shows up the second half of the season and goes nuts. Mm-hmm. That's who that's the Kyrie he's reminding me of at spots cuz it's like you know if he has if he's got that thing going he can take over a game and it just looks easy for him. And keep in mind too if James Harden comes back they get even that much better 
Right. They're already up two games to one with Harden playing a minute and 12 seconds into this playoff series. That's frightening. And when he comes back, it's game over. <laughs> Speaking of series that feel like game over, we got to talk about Denver and Phoenix because this is going into this series. I would have thought. I would have thought that Denver could be a more competitive team. But with, with game three going down around, you know, around the time, I should say after the time that we're, we're recording this podcast, I feel like, and I think you and I have talked about this, I feel like the Suns really have the upper hand here. And this is considering the fact that Denver's a really talented team. And, you know, we, we know what Jokic is. And he won the MVP. But at the same time, it's like we can't count on Jokic to try to quiet this Phoenix team all alone. And we know Denver has the pieces. But it's like, can they keep pace with Phoenix? Right now, I'm not so sure. That's where it. That's where it comes down to me. Eight DeAndre Ayton versus Jokic has been a wash. Right. Or Jokic will barely win the battle. But you look at the guards, and Phoenix blows Denver out of the water. You go back to the uh, Portland series with Denver. It was Damian Lillard doing everything he possibly could to win a basketball game for the Trailblazers. Exactly. Phoenix doesn't have to do that because they got five dudes that can do stuff, including Jay Crowder and Mikel Bridges, who can knock down the three. I mean, Devin Booker's going to get his. Chris Paul's going to get his. I was about to say, we haven't mentioned Chris Paul yet. Right, right. They have too many playmakers, and Denver's too beat up to contend, in my opinion. They were able to beat Portland because they took Lillard out of the game, but you can't take Devin Booker, Chris Paul, and Mikel Bridges, and Jamison Crowder, or Jay Jay Crowder. Jay Crowder. And also uh, DeAndre Ayton. You can't take all five of those out of the game. They were able to do it at Portland because Portland is just a chuck kind of team. But the Suns are just too well balanced. And I go back to uh, Jamal Murray being out. That kills Denver. Absolutely. And that's the one guy who might be able to at least, if nothing else, neutralize. Because, like you said, you can't take all five of those guys out. But at least, you know, Jamal Murray might be able to neutralize things a bit. But that hasn't been the case. Speaking of teams with lots of playmakers, now we have the Clippers who get past Dallas in the first round and now in the second round. In the what the heck series. In the what the heck series <laughs> against Utah. Now they look like the Clippers that we expected them to be all along against Dallas but didn't really show up until later in the series. And they're still not winning. And they're still not winning. And it's like, wait a minute, how is this possible? Because, you know, Paul George is – Starting to shed the 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 um the pandemic P, you know, label to him. Kawhi Leonard has gone back to being Kawhi Loren. He's going back to being the guy that I've expected him to be, or that I thought he should be from pretty much from Jump Street. The Sith Lord under Popovich. <laughs> he, the the former Sith apprentice under Greg Popovich, who never really lived up to the billing, kind of like Kyle Loren, but that's besides the point. Um, but that's what I expected from him. So like, so when Kawhi takes over a game and just drops like 40, you're like, okay, well, this is what I want out of Kawhi. And you see all this with the Clippers, and you're like, this is what I want to see out of the Clippers. And then, like you said, then they don't win. What happened? When we do, when we used to do the world's worst, and we had guy no one's talking about, Reggie Jackson yes. put up 39 points in game two. Where did he come from? And yet, they still didn't win. And here's why. Because the Utah Jazz have enough guys that it doesn't matter what Reggie Jackson, Paul George, and Kawhi can do. Because that's all that's going for the Clippers. Zubats isn't doing enough. 
They're not getting enough from Nicholas Batum. Right. And they're not getting enough from the other power forward that I'm drawing a complete... Oh, Marcus Morris. Yes. They're not getting enough from those guys. But Utah can bring Jordan Clarkson in after Mike Conley gets hurt, and he can throw up 39 points and go 7 of 10 from 3. Bogdanovich can hit a 3 literally whenever he wants. Whenever he feels like it. Joe Ingles can hit a 3 whenever he wants. These guys just have too many weapons. Oh, yeah, and we haven't talked about Rudy Gobert. Right. Who can knock down Who the three won defensive like player it. of the year, by the way. And he can actually shoot a little bit when he feels like it, too. So there's that, too. And Donovan Mitchell, of And course. Donovan Mitchell, who, honestly, Donovan Mitchell really is the linchpin in all of it. He's the X factor. They needed him to come back healthy, and he came back more than healthy. Absolutely. He has looked insane. So the Clippers are back to being the team that can light up a scoreboard, but they're also a team that, other than Kawhi, Paul George, and now Reggie Jackson – it's just not there. Right. But Utah has the balance, and they're a juggernaut, man. I think they win the West. I really think the them being the one seed, and everybody's like, oh, they're just a regular season team. Let's see them doing the playoffs. They're, they're doing, they're it, in the doing it in the playoffs. They're doing it. They look really good. And, again, Mike Conley's hurt. You bring him back. Now you're bringing Clarkson off the bench, who could win sixth man of the year possibly. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I don't know how you don't like Utah. And I liked Jordan Clarkson as a Laker. Being a Laker fan, I like Jordan Clarkson being a Laker. I remember Jordan Clarkson when he played for Mizzou as a guy who covered an SEC program. He hasn't looked this good. He hasn't looked this good in a long time. And to have him happen, have him doing that right now, and having it happen for Utah is huge. How long have you and I been saying Utah's like a piece or two away from being a really good team in the West? Yep. Now they look like they have all the pieces to be a really good team in the West. It makes a difference when you have everybody together. And then you add on Donovan Mitchell, who just continues to grow. And the guy who Shaq pretty much said, you know, you know, for all intents and purposes, was like, yeah, I think you're not good enough, and I think you could be better. And Mitchell's like, okay. And then just goes and cake, he just cooks people. And you're yes. like, yes. oh, okay, cool. <laughs> fine, fair enough, fine. So, yeah, Utah feels like they're finally taking that leap even though I felt like maybe they needed another body or two to do it, but they found the guys that they needed to to get the job done, so kudos to them. Real quickly, we're talking about the Clippers. Dallas, they need help. Yes. It can't just be Luka. And that's that's been proven now. Porzingis didn't show up again in the playoffs. There were people who were going to ride Chris Stapp's Porzingis out Out of Dallas Dallas. on a rail. They want him gone. Yep. I thought I'd never see that day. I don't want him gone, but I want him back as a four because he's not a five. No, and he they're playing him as a five. He should be a four. Porzingis, if he's not the guy who's, if he's not the guy you create in a lab for a stretch four, he's the embodiment of what you expect from a European stretch four. If there's any kid you're going to draft in in from a, a European country and say, okay, I need a tall European stretch four who can handle the ball a little bit and shoot. It's probably going to look a lot like Chris Stapps. <laughs> yes. And when you don't have him playing that role, it's frustrating. It's as frustrating to watch that happen as much as it was frustrating to watch Sam uh, Sam Young at Pitt playing the four when you knew Sam Young was a three. Yes. Sam Young was a six foot nine athletic guy who can shoot from anywhere and score from anywhere on the floor. Let him do what he's built to do. Stop making him do something and become something that he's not. That's how frustrating it is sometimes to watch Chris Stapps. I'm like, that's not him. Mm-hmm. Let him be what he is. Like, let let that unicorn roam free. And they're not doing that. So hopefully, if Dallas is not going to do that, then send him to a team that will. Because right now, like you said, he's just not showing up when they need him to. 
it they they put way too much on Luca, and the Clippers found a way to let him get his, but then also try and make somebody else beat you, and nobody could do it. They did what Detroit did. Was that 2003 when Detroit beat uh, the Lakers? And Detroit's like, all right, let Shaq score a bunch of points. Is it 2003 or 2004? Can't remember off the top of my head right now. But the Pistons are like, all right, let Shaq get his 20, 25 points and 10, 12 rebounds at a couple blocks. Let him get his five or six dunks a game. We're going to shut down Kobe. And that's exactly what they did. Mm-hmm. They let Shaq do whatever he wanted to do. And then when it came down to locking down Kobe, you saw two, sometimes three dudes in Kobe's face making him work to get shots off. They made Kobe's life hell. And they were like, Go ahead, let, let Shaq get his. All right, that's fine. Because you can't do it if you ain't got Kobe. They knew. It's only two points, too, for Shaq. Right. It's like, <laughs> Kobe's a guy that can kill you from 25 feet. Let's take that guy out of the game. Yep. That's exactly what they did. And the Clippers did the same thing with Dallas. They're like, okay, we got these other guys that are okay, but it ain't going to work without Luka. So take Luka out of the game and watch it fall apart. And that's exactly what happened. Yep. Now, let's get to the series that I think on that side of the bracket. First of all, I thought we would, it was the more intriguing one on that side of the bracket to begin with. But I think we both like this one coming in just because of the matchup. Philly and Atlanta. Like, this is, as much as we were looking forward to Atlanta and the Knicks, I kind of looked forward to Philly and Atlanta, too. And it's kind of filling, it's kind of fitting the billing as far as what these teams were at least expected to do. But at the same time, I'm looking at Philly going, okay, you guys have figured this out. You're just doing what's necessary. I was so disappointed with the Knicks and the Hawks series because the Knicks just didn't show up. Right. They played one game at Madison Square Garden that tied the series, and you're like, all right, the Knicks have a shot at this thing. And then they went to Atlanta and just got creamed, went back to New York, and they got beat. And Trey Young played villain the entire time, and he was a pretty good villain. Now you look at this series. Game one, Atlanta comes out guns blazing, blowing out Philly. Philly come all the way back and only lose by four. I'm thinking, that's a problem. Atlanta was killing them, and Philly came all the way back. That means that Philly is still going to win this series. And then game two proved it. Atlanta-Philly was, 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 is what I was expecting Atlanta and the Knicks to be. But Philly's actually showing up and doing what they need to do. And you and I were talking about this off air. Game three, I believe it was game three. Game two. Game two, thank you. Game two, you know... Everything with Shake Milton. Shake Milton. Shake Milton became the story in game two. But the thing that got left out, and I thought Kenny Smith did a pretty good job of, of explaining this. He's like, okay, Shake Milton did what he did, but Embiid still got you 40 and 20. You know, Seth Curry was still shooting like Seth Curry. He's like, the one guy who really didn't show up for Philly was Ben Simmons. So you needed Shake Milton to kind of replace what was missing. But Ben Simmons isn't going to score four points every night in this series. He's going to show up again at some point and start getting buckets the way he knows how to. Mm-hmm. Because Ben Simmons is the one guy that everybody else can do what they need to do. And Ben Simmons doesn't have to be on point every night. So when he is, it just makes this team that much better. And you figure when that time comes, it might be a little bit too much for the Hawks. Well, Ben Simmons got moved to center when Joel Embiid got hurt, which is way out of his element. Right. So he was already playing a different position. Then Embiid came back. You knew he was going to be shaky in game one because he came back from an injury. He still did pretty good, though. But the guy that has been really impressive to me is Tobias Harris, yes. who I've been a big fan of since he came into the league. He was on my fantasy team whenever he played for the Pistons. I was like, this guy just needs to play for a contending team, and he will be a legit player. 
and he's there now with I'm, Philly. I'm glad Philly really has invested in keeping him around because they realize how integral he was. And I, I thought during the highlights they were kind of they were kind of breaking this down or like the Tobias Harris against Trey Young matchup works a lot for Philly. They were giving Tobias the ball in the post, and he's backing down Trey Young, and it's like, hey, if it works, keep doing it. Right. So Philly, in my opinion, is really starting to understand, okay, we're not going to be able to maybe stop it, thing everything Atlanta's doing, but we know we can match them and probably do more than them. Because Atlanta's going to have some points where they're going to have different points in the game where they're going to have their runs. Trey Young's going to start to get hot, and he's going to do what he does. But if you can counter what they're doing, and maybe do a couple extra things that they don't do because you have more depth than they have, then you can make that difference. And that's exactly what happened in game two. So putting a wrap on this, do we like all the favorites to win these series? We like Brooklyn. Yes. We like Philly. Yes. We like Utah. Yes. Amazingly, yes. (laughs) And we like uh, the Suns. Yeah. So... Yeah, and I, of all teams that I would have liked with more confidence than most, I'm surprised that I'm actually this confident in Phoenix. But, yeah. I think them beating LeBron and the Lakers. Now, yes, Anthony Davis got hurt, got hurt, but it's still LeBron in the playoffs. Right. I think if you can knock them off as easily as Phoenix did – it proves that you are a legit team. Right. It, it's it's the U.S. knocking off the Soviet Union in the semifinals in Lake Placid. Like, you might not face the best team after that in the next round, but you just knocked the best team out. And what the Suns did was they knocked the best team out in the first round. Right. That. In game six in at game Staples six. Center. Right. That's that's an entirely different dynamic. It That changes everything. So when you have that happen, if you're Phoenix, your confidence is pretty much infinite at this point. And that that really changes how you approach every series after that. Because in the back of your mind, you're going, all right, we're facing, you know, we're facing um, Denver and they got X, Y, and Z. Okay, they have Jokic. They have, they have, you know, they have Jokic, who's the MVP. But we didn't have to deal with much as him as, as much with him as we did with LeBron and AD. Like, okay, we might have to face Utah but they're not LeBron and AD. Like, that's what it becomes. Right. Because you've already faced the worst of it, and you've survived it. Granted, yes, AD's injury means something, but at the same time, you're still telling yourself, we've already dealt with the worst-case scenario. How much worse can it be moving forward? And this is a team that you remember, wait a minute, they were the two-seed. Right. Oops. <laughs> and and they were, like, looking at looked at as the underdog. Right. Because it was LeBron and the Lakers. Now, I think Utah versus... Phoenix will be one for the ages. Oh, yeah. That's going to be really good if that happens. I will be devastated if we don't get that. I want that series. <laughs> I want that series now more than I wanted the Hawks and the, and the Knicks. And we and I really want Brooklyn and Philly. Because yes. those are the two best teams in the East. Yes. And these are the two best teams in the West. It's the one and two, and it's the one and the two. And it, it sets up for an NBA final with two teams who earn their way there. And whoever wins that series earn their right to be called the the champions of the league. It feels more like a playoff to where, okay, it's not a foregone conclusion that one of maybe two or three teams can win. If those four teams advance... It's anybody's game. I, let me put it to you this way. If it's those four teams, if it's Utah and Phoenix and Brooklyn and Philly, I don't have a clear-cut favorite. 
Me either. I don't. And you know what? I love that. <laughs> That's what I want. I, I mean, granted, yes, it's good to have a favor going in, of course. But you got four really good teams, and now they got to take each other out. Well, at least in the case of being of two teams and two teams taking each other out. But that's what I want because now both those series can go six, seven games. Yep. Which if you're the NBA, if you're Adam Silver, you're not complaining about that. Now you got a final series that could go six, seven games, and you're not complaining about that either. You could see this postseason go into mid-July. Am I going to argue with that? I'm not. After him getting all the attention when they went to the bubble and no other sport was playing at the time, right? They live for this stuff. Exactly. <laughs> it. It's honestly, you hate to use a conspiracy theory of, oh, this is what the league wants. This is what the league wants. If that's what happens, let's just say the NBA is not going to complain. <laughs> I guess that's a safe way to put it. Let's take a break here. When we come back, we got to talk about, we, we got, and this is a subject we've talked about. It seems like we talked about it so much already this season, but here we go again. Baseball with replaying and bad umpiring and things that they just miss that you have no business missing. We got to talk about that stuff. And we got to play our favorite news headline game. Is this a thing? And yeah, there's a couple of fan bases that might be mad at us after we're done. And guess what? We don't care. Episode number 18, Sunday Morning Grind Podcast. We'll see you in a minute. You're listening to the Sunday Morning Grind Podcast, a show where we talk about sports both on the Pittsburgh level locally, but also around the sporting world as well. We have a little fun with it, by the way, too. You can download the Sunday Morning Grind on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Anchor, or Spotify, basically anywhere you get your podcasts from. Now let's get back to the show. Segment number two of episode number 18 of the Sunday Morning Grind podcast. Josh Taylor, Greg Fenley, back at it again. We're going to get to our favorite news headline game in just a moment. We will play Is This a Thing? But before we do that, Greg, we got to kind of go back to the well here of something we have talked about. It seems like way too much already. But it also seems like every time it happens, we can't talk about it enough. But here we go again. Major League Baseball. You'd figure it would be Major League Baseball on its own, but no. There's something else we can add to the pile now. We can actually add Minor League Baseball into this, so we can kind of make this professional baseball. And issues with replay, issues with bad umpiring, and it just continues to spill over. And no one really has an answer for it. I'll I'll bring up this example because it was something that I happened to notice while I was on vacation. One of the few times I kind of you know, stuck my head in on Twitter. And it just so happened, the Northwest Arkansas Naturals, the double-A affiliate of the Kansas City City Royals, a team I covered for three seasons when I lived in Springfield, Arkansas, for a spell and partially in bed. One of their their big up-and-coming prospects, um, Bobby Witt Jr., yes, that Bobby Witt Jr., hits a home run. I believe it was on the road was, I can't remember exactly where it was. I think it was Corpus Christi. Hits a home run. Trots around the bases, comes around the home plate, and does like a sidestep shuffle across home plate. Touches home plate with one foot, drags another one across the plate. Just to be safe. Just to be safe. 
and you look at the video replay, and it shows it, how he steps on the plate. And if you freeze it at the right time, you can get a good, nice angle of his foot clearly touching the middle of the white of the plate with a shadow over the plate and white on either side of his foot, pretty much indicating, yeah, he touched the plate. What happens after that? Before the next batter, the pitcher steps off the rubber, throws to the plate, catcher steps on the plate, umpire calls him out because they claim he didn't touch home plate. And it was pretty obvious. Now, here's the problem. It's not the fact that the video evidence confirms that Bobby Witt Jr. touched the plate. It's the fact that when you watch the video of Bobby Witt Jr. touching the plate, who's standing literally three feet behind him? The home plate umpire. But it gets better because after Bobby Witt Jr. clearly touches home plate, what does the home plate umpire do? Bends over, cleans off the dirt from home plate that Bobby Witt's own shoe left. What? That's all I got. What? <laughs> I, I, I couldn't agree more. It's embarrassing. Because I thought the same thing. I was like, okay, why is the umpire cleaning off home plate if he didn't touch home plate? Because you see him stoop down, pull out his thing, and wipe it off. Because if he didn't touch home plate and home plate was still clean, there would be no reason to clean off home plate. No, and someone's like, oh, well, you know, that's a thing that just home, home plate umpires do. No, 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 no. They clean off home plate because home, home plate is dirty. They don't just do it out of habit. Exactly. They don't do it unless you touch it. Did I tell you my theory on this? Go ahead. It's kind of a ridiculous theory, but it wouldn't surprise me if it was true. I get the feeling that both the catcher and the home plate umpire saw Bobby Witt Jr. do that sidestep over the plate. And both probably felt some kind of way about it. Because to them, it was showing up their guy. Or showing up the pitcher. And my response to that is, if you don't want batters shuffling sideways over the plate and touching with one foot and dragging with another one, don't let them hit huge, massive home runs off you. That's pretty much how it works. I'm going to subscribe to the Jimmy Johnson with the University of Miami in the 80s theory every time. You don't want us dancing, don't let us score. Real simple. And if you can't avoid the other team from scoring... Do what Chuck Knoll used to do and go about your life's work, because clearly this job ain't for you. It's real simple. Did you see the video on Twitter of the college baseball game? I believe it was TCU. Kid hit a home run and started watching it, and the umpire told him to get stepping. It's like, are you you're, the umpire's telling me to start stepping? I can't Why? watch that I just hit an absolute moonshot? <laughs> Why? What yep. was the point of that? Right? I, I can't say this enough. This goes for Major League Baseball, this goes for Minor League Baseball, and it goes for college baseball, which up until that very point was why I loved college baseball, because it was a bunch of kids playing a game, and the emotional moments were being carried out as emotional moments, because these are young players that are just actually feeding off of what they're feeling at the time. Because high drama, high emotional moments should be carried out as such. Stop expecting human beings who show real-life human emotions to act like freaking robots. Stop all that. Because if umpires can't be expected to act like robots, why should we expect players to? Well, we shouldn't. I got a problem with that standard. Oh, the human element in the game when it comes to the umpires. 
What happened to the human element when it comes to the players? Because showing emotion, you want to talk about human element. Showing emotion is not just some desire to be some showboat. It's the human freaking condition. Emotions are what make us human. So don't sit there and preach to me about the human element when it comes to umpires when players who actually exhibit the greatest part of the human element and they're not allowed to do it. What's going on? Do you remember the playoff game when Batista hit the home run off of Texas and the crowd went insane? Yes, it was a huge moment. And he bat flipped and how awesome that was. It was a huge moment. You know what's crazy? Like, go look at any old-time baseball video, whether it's Ken Burns' documentary. I don't even know if it's in there, but it probably is. Go look at any of those. What's one of the most iconic postseason moments in baseball history? Carlton Fisk, 1976, Fenway Park. He's skipping down the line, trying to wave the ball fair because it's going to be inside the foul pole. And then when it does, what does he do? He stretches his arms up and then he runs around. That's a pure emotional moment. Yes. And that's one of the greater ones that we've celebrated for decades. That one's okay. But some of these other ones aren't. Oh, but but Major League Baseball wants you to make, make it major. They got these promos up. Make it major. They show all these high drama, high emotional moments and bat flips and pitchers celebrating on the mound. And what does it say at the bottom? Make it major. Either you want it to be major. Or you don't, but you need to decide. Either you want baseball to be this exciting, emotional game that people can actually watch and attach and get attached to and actually relate to and allow themselves to enjoy that experience of how great the game could be, or you want it to be a bunch of stiff robots doing stupid stuff. But you got to choose. Yep. I'm sick of baseball deciding when they, when they want it to be a fun, emotional game so it can market it and draw people in. But then sometimes when those moments happen, you want to throw a cold bucket of water on it. I'm sick of baseball doing that, just like I'm sick of hockey telling people, oh, look at the great skill and talent that we have. But then those guys get cross-checked in the back of the head and no penalties are caught in the playoffs. Either you want skill and you want talent or you want goonery. Choose. That's for the NHL. Baseball, you either want emotion and drama or you want black and white people square dancing you know, you, I should say square dancing in black and white, no color TV in the middle of a gym somewhere. Make up your freaking mind. It makes no sense to me. Another thing that doesn't make sense to me in this same topic, instant replay, which oh, we've God. talked about a lot. Oh, don't start me. But Gary Cohen just absolutely crushed Major League Baseball during the Mets and Orioles game. And it was just beautiful, Josh. So... There's a close play at first base. Batter's out by a mile. Like he's out by a step at least. Umpire calls him safe. It was a double play ball. Ends the inning. Mets challenge. I kid you not, it took five minutes. Yeah. And the and Gary Cohen says, this is ridiculous. We've seen it literally the first or second time they've shown the replay that he is out. Clearly. The ball's in the glove. The foot is on the base before the batter's foot is on the base. He goes, this is ridiculous. And then uh, Ron Darling was like, you know, they're trying to appeal to younger people. They're trying to speed the game up, and this stuff is not helping. And then they come out and get the call wrong. Here's the problem. Instant replay is not supposed to be added into the conversation of speeding the game up. Instant replay is supposed to be added to the conversation of getting it right because the so-called human element is wrong more often than not. Yes. That's the issue. 
because that's what turns some people off the of baseball because you will see something clear as day be one thing and they're calling it something else. That's another thing that turns people off. But the fact that it took them five minutes for a play that I could tell literally in once, in one shot, I'm like, he's out. And then they still called him safe. I, I, Gary Cohen was just, he's like, this is embarrassing. Yes. What is the point of having instant replay if they can't even get it right? I was like, preach. <laughs> he's absolutely right. And the bigger problem is, and this is the next question that Gary Cohen should have asked, why can't they seem to get it right? Because it doesn't make sense that something that obvious gets missed. I mean, and it doesn't make sense that something that obvious gets missed that frequently. If they're on the phone for five minutes and they go, okay, what are you seeing? He goes, okay, he's got the ball in the glove, but I don't have a good angle. His foot's on the base. Let's try this one. Okay, ball in the glove, still can't tell. It's like they took five minutes, and I, I think he just went, you know what? I don't have a good angle. I can't tell. Even though I had a good angle, I'm watching the game on television. It, it makes no sense. The first angle showed it. Ball in glove, foot on base, batter's foot, not on first. He's out. That's and, how that works. And it's down to two things with me. And they're both fixable. One, you clearly don't either have good equipment or you don't have good enough camera angles. As much money gets paid to put these productions on, you can find a better angle, you can get better equipment. Right. It's fixable. The other thing, which is both fixable, and if it's true, is infuriating. They don't want to overturn too many calls because it'll piss the umpires off. Because they don't want to be shown up or proven wrong, which also is fixable. If that's the case, they need to eliminate instant replay. If, right. If they're trying to say, well, we can't change call enough calls because we're showing up the umpires, there's no point in having instant replay then because you the whole point is to get it right. And I'm going to come back to the same thing. And until I hear it, I'm going to feel the same way. I just wish umpires or MLB officials, and, and for that matter, if, in conjunction, I wish they would just come out and say, you know what? The game has changed to where there are some things that happen that we can't always see with the naked eye. So we need a little bit of help to make sure that we're interpreting what we saw with our naked eye was in fact what we saw. So sometimes we need some help confirming it. Sometimes we'll get it right. Sometimes we'll get it wrong. But for the actual integrity of the game, which tends to be brought up as some all-encompassing, you know, trump card that they play to settle whatever dispute, but when the actual integrity of the game is in question, stuff like this gets ignored. But for the actual integrity of the game, let's actually work to make sure what we're seeing is right because that way the game can be performed the way it should be. If they would come out and say that, you would probably win over so many fans that have been turned off and probably make the fans that are still hanging around but are incredibly frustrated a lot happier. But they refuse to do that. And that's what makes this crazy and frustrating, and that's what makes Instant Replay crazy and frustrating. Okay, I got one more thing on baseball being infuriating the Pirates Dodgers series on Thursday it was a day game gets called because of rain 30 minutes after they call the game it stopped raining it was sunny they absolutely could have played the game 
My question is, I got two. Number one, is it because of travel that they go, well, we got to get the Pirates to Milwaukee and we got to get the Dodgers to Los Angeles and it's already 4 o'clock in the afternoon and we got to get them there at a certain time? Is that why they call it? And number two, if it was vice versa, if the Dodgers were losing 6-3, to three, do you really think that they wouldn't want two more innings to bat? If the Pirates weren't heading to Milwaukee, I'd probably think maybe they think about waiting that out. Because the Dodgers going back to L.A., they're gaining three hours. Exactly. So it ain't hurting the Dodgers. I mean, technically, the Pirates are not even technically. The Pirates are gaining an hour going back to Milwaukee. I'm pretty sure that's a central time zone. Yes. So it kind of doesn't hurt the Pirates all that much. But I think you're right. If the Pirates are ahead 6-3, to three, maybe they finish out that game. Maybe that was the deciding factor. I don't know because— You think the Pirates are just like, man, we're tired of getting beat. Well, because I'm, I'm, my thought process is you figure the home team has some kind of say in this, and you'd figure they got somebody at the ballpark who's watching the radar system and saying, hey, this should blow over in a half hour. Right. I don't— they I mean, were playing through while it was downpouring. Kyle Crick couldn't throw a strike. Right. Jacob Stallings couldn't throw the ball back to the pitcher because it was raining so hard. And then all of a sudden, they come out and they go, hey, here's the radar. They're like, oh, let's pull the tarp, and then it's going to clear up, and we'll pick it back up. And they, sh- they called the game. They should have pulled a move like the Reds did, just like keep switching baseballs out and yes. not pitching. Yes, yes. That's when you pull that move out. Yes. You, they, they gave you the blueprint. That's when you do it. He they kept throwing over to first, trying to check on Betts. And Betts is like, dude, I'm not going anywhere. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, well, yeah, obviously, but we're trying to stall. This is when you this is when you like, nope, switch the ball out. Nope, switch the ball out. I'm not throwing. Like that's when you that's when you pull that move off. That's it, what they should have done. It's just ridiculous that we're in the year twenty twenty one and we still don't know how a rain delay process works, when a game's gonna get called or when it's not. When it's time to actually pull the tarp or not. I mean, it was downpouring. I, they should have pulled the tarp ahead of time. I love how people say, oh, but we never had this problem back then. They used to do it like this, and they knew what to do back then. So this other stuff, why can't they do that now? Whose fault is that? I don't I don't get that part. Like, well, they knew what to do with rain delays back then. They knew what to do when it was time to, you know, call games back then. What happened? Like, I, I can't figure out what the difference is. So if you can figure that out, Greg, by all means, let me know. Because once again, it just comes back to everything being infuriating. And to put it in one word, crazy. And I use that word on purpose. Because it's time to get a little crazy. It's time to play our favorite news headline game. Is this a thing? I teased this in the previous segment. There may be a fan base out there that probably hates us after we're done with this. And we kind of don't care. But here's why it's a little bit of a rub. Because a member of that fan base lives in my own household. Honey, I love you, but we're going to have to kill your team. (laughs) They might have to die. Let's start with my wife's favorite baseball team. Let's start with the Yankees. Now, if you've seen the video of the grown-ass woman berating a young child. Now, this grown woman being a Yankees fan and this young child being a Red Sox fan... And the Red Sox are beating the Yankees, and the Yankees are absolute cheese at this point. And the the, the lady's response is, 27 rings! It's like... <sighs> so, my question to you. 
because a grown woman screaming 27 rings at a third grader. But more importantly, Yankees fans acting very similar to Pirate fans. Or not Pirate fans, I'm sorry. Yankees fans acting very similar to Steelers fans when it comes to the Browns. Very, acting very similar to Penguins fans when it comes to the Flyers. Is this a thing? Yes. Living in the past is what I like to call it. 27 rings. You haven't won a World Series in a while now. It's been a good 10 plus years. City of Champions. You haven't won a Super Bowl. You haven't won a playoff game in a while now. (laughs) Yeah, usually champions win playoff games. So At least a couple. So, and, And what makes it even better, the Yankees literally have the most money in baseball. They've had it forever. It's them and the Dodgers, pretty much. They've had it forever. Like They've, everybody hated them because they're like though the Yankees can get whoever they want. They can just buy their team. You have when you have Garrett Cole, Giancarlo Stanton, Aaron Judge, Aroldis Chapman. I've named four guys already. That's better than half the teams in the in the American League already. You put those four guys on any other team in any regardless of what league it is, they're probably going to win a lot of games. So regardless. So the fact that they're still cheese <laughs> and. Yankee fans are living in the past. That's absolutely a thing, man. I can't figure out how Pirate fans are still mad about the Jameis and Tyone trade. I'm like, it's not working for them. No, Tyone's been garbage for them. Let's let's relax a little bit. This one, Ben Sherrington might have fleeced the Yankees a little bit. Let's let's relax about it. But yeah, it's it's the same dynamic because I hear Browns fans. Here's the thing: Browns fans have all the license in the world to talk trash on the Steelers. They played three times last year. Cleveland won two out of the three. Sorry, they have bragging rights. That's how it works. And they won the game that mattered in the playoffs. They won the game of the three that mattered. They won the second regular season game, and they won the playoff game. And by the way, the Steelers looked awful in that playoff game. So, yeah, Cleveland's got bragging rights. Oh, here's six Super Bowls. Yeah, okay, good. But when was the last one? It's more than a decade ago. Maybe. Just maybe. Now, granted, I've seen them win two in my lifetime. I've seen them go to four Super Bowls in my lifetime, and they won two of them. Oh, you had to watch the Neil O'Donnell game. Oh, yeah, I was in ninth grade when that happened. Oh, I remember that game. But you know what? At the same time, let's live in now every once in a while. Now, we're talking about the Flyers and the Penguins, too. Haven't seen the Cubs since 1975. Yeah, you're right. That's cool. That's good. Penguins haven't done anything in a while either, though. It's, It's been a few years. Let's let's tone that down a bit. Yep, you got bounced by the Islanders again. Maybe maybe be quiet for a while. That's all I'm saying. Like for the for the last two times they drew the Islanders. Everybody's like, oh, thank God, the Islanders. We're gonna run right through them. Uh, no, you're not. <laughs> uh, like Yankees fans, you haven't won in 12 years. Steelers fans, you haven't won in I believe it's 12 years. So, Pens fans, you know you, you got pretty much embarrassed by the islanders so go away for a while maybe maybe take a break for a little bit that's all i'm saying that's the thing let's keep it moving here i'm I'm gonna bring this right back around to the yankees just because i can (laughs) spider tech it's become a hot topic of conversation amongst pitchers that use it and garrett cole was asked a question just flat out have you ever used spider tech and his, his answer was miserable. His answer was literally every word 
you can put in a word salad that wasn't yes or no. Literally everything you can think of without saying, I don't think he said yes or no in the entire exchange of words. And that's literally the only two options that were necessary for that line of questioning. Yes or no. And couldn't do it. Here's the funny part. There have been a few people that have alleged for a while now that Garrett Cole's been cheating. Dating back to his Houston days. And now he's with the Yankees. And they're like, hey, Garrett Cole's still cheating. But here's the crazy part. Garrett Cole's on a really, really big contract with the Yankees right now. And he can't really tell the truth about whether or not he's been using something that might be considered cheating. And here's the funny part. He's not going to get penalized for it now because it's not considered illegal now. It's a lot like maybe 20 years ago. When people were asking questions of certain players, have you ever done X, Y, Z? And they couldn't seem to come up with answers. Garrett Cole, sounding a lot like Mark McGuire, because maybe he's a cheating fraud. Greg, is this a thing? I think it is. Did you see the tweet after they, uh, after it came out that pitchers were cheating? The very next start, Cole, th- Cole got absolutely lit up. And they're like, oh, isn't that interesting? Oh, oh how <laughs> curious of the timing. <laughs> Funny how that works. It, you know, it just, I, I can't. I can't with this whole... Look, man, it's baseball. Baseball has been built on cheating. Thank you. I, I can't with this whole, and I'm going to come back to this again, this whole integrity of the game and the purity of the game and the spirit of the game. It, people have been cheating for decades. Decades. There was a video that went out that was posted a while back. This was Bob Gibson while he was still alive. And he was saying, I'm pretty sure Bob Gibson is, Let let me let me let me make sure I'm saying this correctly because... I don't want to say a man is dead if he's not necessarily dead. But I want to say, if I'm not mistaken. No, he passed away. Bob Gibson did indeed pass away. Okay, he passed away last October. I thought so, because I was going to say Bob Gibson when he was still alive. I thought he was still alive, but he was asked the question about whether or not he would have used steroids if he had the opportunity. He said, look, people have been trying to cheat in this game and get an edge for years. And he says, I honestly can't say if I can get an edge if I would have tried it or not. If I thought a guy was getting an edge over me and I can find a way to do it myself, maybe I'd do it. But it wouldn't be fair to say because I honestly don't know if I would try it. Bob Gibson, who's one of the considered one of the most dominant pitchers in this game's history, pretty much admitted that, yeah, this game is a history of cheating. I don't understand it. Let's stop acting like there's just this great purity to this game and stop looking for the man behind the curtain. Let's stop doing that and just acknowledge the fact that people have been cheating in this game for years and call it what it is. If they find out the current pitchers that could be Hall of Famers soon are using this stuff, they're going to treat it like the steroid era? They better. They need to. They need to treat that like the steroid era, just like they need to treat snot balls like the steroid era. They need to treat spitballs like the steroid era. Like they need to treat amphetamines and greenies like the steroid era. Gambling, they need to treat on, all of it. gambling on baseball when you're allowed to do it now. You, you, they need to treat that like the steroid era. And funny how that all kind of goes back to, wait a minute, that's over 100 years worth of history. Now you see what we're getting at. Because it's been going on that long. Yeah, that, and this doesn't surprise me at all. When it came out, I was like, okay, and? <laughs> right, it's just like. It's baseball. They cheat. Except what it, it's like, it what it is. It's like, it's like that Floyd Mayweather versus Logan Paul fight. 
Oh, it was God. we knew we knew if you bought if you bought it, you knew what you were buying. It was going to be a staged thing. So it would set up a second one. Exactly. Baseball is becoming when is the next cheating scandal going to come out? Because it's going to. It, and it's always, okay, what's the cheating scandal today? Dude, That's what it feels like. Guys are still getting suspended for PEDs. Ergo, Robinson Cano is not playing this year yep. because he was like, yeah, you know what? Maybe they won't catch me this time. Well, guess what? They caught you. Yep. And it, it really. Like, it, it doesn't. You're going to get caught every time. That's the other thing. We know that they're going to cheat. And we know that we're going to hear about it, but don't you think in their little brains that they they would think, huh, I'm probably going to get caught for this. Maybe I shouldn't do it. Yep. And they're still doing it because that's what baseball has become. If I find out Jacob DeGrom cheated, I'm going to cry because he's been so good and I have respected him for so long as a baseball player and as a pitcher. I just really hope that it doesn't come out that he's cheating. All right, two things I want to get to on the li- on, along the lines of cheating in baseball, but not necessarily cheating as much as it is manipulation. Chelsea James, Washington Post baseball writer, um, tweeted this earlier in the week. Something I hadn't heard from a player before. Pete Alonzo just told reporters his theory, which he says is widespread among players, that MLB manipulates the baseballs year to year based on the free agent class. Pointed to juiced ball of 2019 before a lot of pitchers hit the market. Noted that a lot of high-profile shortstops and precision players are hitting the market this year when MLB has deadened the ball. Quote, it's not a coincidence. It's something that they do. We've talked about MLB doctoring the baseballs oh, yeah. for some time now. So MLB doctoring the baseballs to possibly keep the free agent market somewhat compressed. Is this a thing, Greg? It's baseball, Josh. Of course it's a thing. Baseball's becoming the shadiest sport of them all. Uh, When your own commissioner comes out and says, no, we didn't do anything to the baseball, and then he comes out and says at the end of the season, all right, we're going back to the original baseballs, and nobody blinked an eye. Wait, 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 wait. (laughs) You said you didn't do anything to them. So what are you going back to, Prato? Right. That doesn't make any sense. I we've now you and I have both worked with with Jack Zarensic. Great guy. Great good great dude. Former GM of the Milwaukee Brewers. I believe he was executive of the year while he was in Milwaukee. He's either there when he was in Seattle, but I want to say it was in Milwaukee. But he was also GM of the Mariners, who tell some really great stories, by the way. But one of the stories I told him working with him doing uh filling in on, on pregame and postgame, um, we were sitting there, and he was telling me the story about how one year when he was a GM, they had a meeting where they sat there and just had this, you know, I don't know if it was on the projector or whatever, but they were showing all these huge salaries that were being tied up with certain players and how these huge contracts were pretty much going bust halfway through. Ryan Howard, I believe, was on that list. There were just a handful of guys. Um, I'm trying to remember some of the other guys. Uh I want to say Prince Fielder might have been on that list, but there were just a couple of, of there were a couple of teams that were pretty much being called out because they had salaries or they had contracts that were these huge contracts for long term deals for big money signed to players, and then halfway to, through two thirds through the contract, it just becomes an albatross. It just becomes empty money, basically to the effect of you need to cut down on handing out these contracts. 
because we're paying players too much money. That was something that actually came down to the GMs, and this is some years ago. So knowing that from a former GM of two different ball clubs, I hear this theory from Pete Alonzo, and I'm going, that makes sense to me, because we already know that they're trying to keep they're trying to keep teams from handing out large free agent contracts. And teams aren't really signing players in free agency anymore. They're signing long-term deals earlier in careers because that way they can buy out years of free agency and it's a cheaper alternative than offering huge contracts to certain players because there's only a handful of teams that can do that when certain big names hit free agency. And we know there's a list of teams that can. So when you know that, and then you hear this from Pete Alonzo, sounds like a thing to me. You think Bobby Bonilla is the reason why they're not paying free agents huge contracts anymore it could be a reason it could be a theory but there's so many of them you can pick one you can throw a dart at a dartboard you land your name on a, a big contract that probably shouldn't have been paid out yep. and that's the scary part and knowing that and that there's been this effort to crack down on those contracts yeah this doesn't sound too far-fetched when you get the details of it last one we'll get to here we got a couple minutes where we do it and this is pretty ridiculous um espn had a story about Bo Beckler's son basically saying, hey, Bo Beckler knew all about what was going on, you know, with um, the doctor. I can't remember his name right now. But there were, uh, I have to try to find the story here. But simply put, there was a bigger issue. Okay, here I have right here. Um, Robert Anderson, thank you. Uh, Dan Murphy from ESPN. Bo Beckler's son says he was molested by team doctor Robert Anderson in 1969, and the famous Michigan so- coach violently silenced him and backed up Anderson when he tried to speak up. Anderson is accused of abusing hundreds in the three decades that followed. We now know of allegations of, of abuse. Michigan, Michigan State, Ohio State, Penn State. That's just four teams that we actually have the actual, you know, I mean, if not evidence, at least piles upon piles right. of allegations for. College football programs just covering up whatever scandal to keep themselves out of trouble and for the preserving of their own program's integrity or ironic lack thereof. Is this a thing? It's a thing, Josh. It's been proven that they care more about wins than they do about doing the right thing. And it's sick. It's absolutely sickening. We got a couple minutes to close this out. I'm, I'm going to say this, and then we can close this show out. Do not come to me about what's wrong with my generation anymore. As long as this went on at Michigan State, as long as this went on at Penn State, as long as this went on at Michigan, as long as this went on in Ohio State, do not come to me about, oh, your generation this, Oh, your generation that. Because all of these things are happening around the same time frames or close to the same time frames and are happening among the same generation of people. And the generation, generations before ours, keep letting this happen and not doing anything about it. You are no longer allowed to point a finger at my generation because the stuff that your generation is either responsible for or were privy to and did nothing about continues to harm people of my generation or the ones before. So every time you come to me, oh, your generation, shut your mouth, go away, 
Your generation has contributed to far worse, and it's ja- it's damaging generations to come. Keep your mouth shut and do the right thing. With that said, we need to close it out. We will be back next week. This has been episode 18 of the Sunday Morning Grind. See you later.